Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, a day that you've given us to rest from our normal activities and to receive from you. We thank you for that which we received from you this morning through word and through sacrament and through your spirit. We pray that you'd be with us again this evening. We pray that you'd transform us by the renewing of our mind. We pray that through your word and spirit, you would conform us more and more to the image of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray, washed in his blood and clothed in his robe of righteousness and indwelt by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, please be seated and turn, if you will, in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And as I had mentioned at the beginning of the service that we've been going through a series in the adult Sunday school class on the book of the Revelation. And often in that class, I say that we really ought to understand what we believe about the end times before we even get to the book of Revelation. Uh, Scripture is just resplendent with preparing us and telling us what we need to know, not exhaustively, but sufficiently that we need to know about what's coming next. But there's always some anxiety about these things. There's anxiety about the return of Jesus. Some are wondering, what about those who are already dead? What about those who are alive? What is our status? Are we ready? Are we spiritually or morally ready? And Paul is writing um, to the Thessalonians, to those who he knows and those who he loves, those who he has served. He's writing as a pastor, as a shepherd. He's visited this church. He spent time with them on his second missionary journey. He helped plant the church as well. You might remember he was actually chased out of that town. He was charged for uh, proclaiming another king besides Caesar. He was charged with instigating a revolt and disturbing the peace, causing people to turn from their idols and to serve and to worship the living God. And it's very pastoral. What he's writing here is meant to comfort the church because the return of the king ought to be a great comfort to those who belong to the king. But he recognizes that there are confusing times and there are confusing truth claims. And so he wants this to comfort them. It should be terrifying to those who don't know the Lord, but it should be a great comfort to those of us who do. And so what we believe and what we confess and what we believe Scripture teaches is that the next and the last tick on the redemptive historical clock will be the return of the king. And with it will come much. We must admit to some mystery to all of this. We know sufficiently, but we don't know exhaustively. We know enough that the Lord has shown us and revealed us. And so we want to look at three things as we look at this text this evening. First, the when of the return. Second, the how of the return. And third, the why of the return. The when of the return, the how of the return, and the why of the return. And it'll be based on, obviously, the scripture, but also what we confess in the Belgic Confession. But let's hear the word of God as Pastor Paul writes to this church to comfort him about these very anxieties and questions. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 13. He says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, 
and with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in the darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are doing. So far, the reading of God's holy word. So you can see there that the, Paul is addressing concerns and fears and anxieties and questions, but his overarching purpose is to comfort them that they belong to the Lord, and that they are his now and always. And so let's look at these three things. First, the when of the return. The date and the hour are simply a mystery to us, but they are appointed by the Lord, as the Belgic Confession says. It's beyond the bounds even of our legitimate investigation to try to be able to figure it out. One theologian said, rather than idle speculation, we should just have faithful proclamation about the return of the king. In other words, it's undateable. We can't set a date and figure it out. Jesus told his disciples, watch therefore, you know neither the day nor the hour. And yet throughout history, church history, so many people have tried to say the day and the hour. We don't know. But the Lord does. At the appointed time, when he has decided to come, when he's decided to return, he will come. And so he encourages us to be ready always. You don't know the day or the hour, so be awake. Trying to prevent us from idleness, try to even prevent us from speculation. It's foolishness to try to figure out the day or the hour because he says you don't know and you can't know. And so he doesn't tell us, maybe even to help us be awake and alive and not lazy or falling asleep, thinking, ho-hum, it's not going to come now. It could come. Like a thief in the night, it says. And so the when of the return is somewhat of a mystery to us in terms of the date or the hour. But we do know something about the when. It's when the number of the elect are complete. When the fullness of the church, when all of his sheep are gathered into his sheepfold. If you will, when all of his family is in the ark, then they will be kept safe. Have you ever been forgotten? (laughs) Left at a mall or left at a school or left behind somewhere? And that feeling of my family forgot me or my friends forgot me or they drove off without me, it's just an awful feeling. It will not happen. (laughs) Paul is saying Jesus isn't going to come back and say, oh, 
I forgot to save Ben. A little too late. He's going to come exactly when he's got all of his sheep in his sheepfold, exactly as he had designed. Everyone for whom our Lord and Savior Jesus died will get safely into the church, safely into his sheepfold, safely into his arms, and then he will come. All of history is moving in the direction of God fulfilling his purposes. That he has set before creation, even before the foundation of the world, he chose and elected those who are his, those who are going to be with him forever. And friends, this should underline, not undermine, our missionary effort and our evangelism. It's because of this great reality. It's because of this great truth that we can go out with confidence and proclaim to a lost and dying world that everyone who calls on the name of our Lord Jesus will be saved. Everyone, come. You who are weary and heavy laden, call on the name of Jesus and you will be saved. Because we know that not one of his will be lost and because he know, we know that he's going to save each and every one of this, then our missionary impulse to preach the gospel and the evangelism is filled with hope and filled with anticipation and filled with confidence because not one of his will be lost. So we know that the when of his return is undateable, but we also know that it's... Um, unalterable. Not one of his will be lost. Everyone for whom the Prince of Glory died will be with him in glory. And also, it's unexpected, like a thief. Right? It's so simple, right? If you knew a thief was coming, you would be ready. (laughs) A thief comes unexpectedly, at least the good ones. Knowledge of this event is not to scare us, but to encourage us to live a godly life. Look at how Paul said it uh, to Titus. He said, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. And so the when of the return is somewhat of a mystery. We don't know the date or hour, but we do know the when of it will be when all of his sheep are gathered together, when all of his people have been saved, when every last one of them is safely in his keeping. And we also know that it will come unexpectedly, like a thief in the night. And so let's turn now to the how of his return. What will it look like? What will it sound like? Well, Scripture tells us that our Lord Jesus will come from heaven. Just like when he ascended in Acts 11, the angels told them he will come in the same way that you saw him go. It's also affirming the current location of our king, that he is in heaven, at the right hand of the Father, where he continues to intercede for us. Having secured our salvation, he preserves our salvation. He will return from the place where he went and he is there now ruling and reigning and he sent the Holy Spirit to assure us of his great love, to give us faith, to regenerate us, to justify us, to adopt us, to sanctify us, to purify us, to give us that perseverance to wait, hoping and expecting to look for the return of the king. And we also know that he will come corporally, meaning in the body. He had a physical body when he was resurrected. He has a physical body when he is glorified. 
And we will be like Jesus was on Easter when he returns. It'll be the same body made new. You're not going to get a whole new body. Something brand new starting from scratch. It's this one. But purified, sanctified, glorified, resurrected, and renewed to be like our precious Lord and Savior. And so we will see him come in a body. He left in a body. He's coming in a body. And it will also be visible. As the disciples saw him ascend, we will see him descend. It will not be a secret, and it will be unmistakable. People won't be wondering, did did Jesus return? You'll know. (laughs) Every eye will see. Every knee will bow. It'll be visible, corporal, a physical body, visibly. And it says he will also come with great glory and majesty. At his incarnation, he appeared in a body of humiliation. In his return, it will be his glorified and resurrected body. Even what the disciples saw, as you heard our pastor say a couple weeks ago at the transfiguration, that kind of thing will be what it's like. And it will also be public. This won't be something that just a few group, a few people know here or there, but listen to what our text says. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is a public event. Physical, visible, corporal, majestic, public. When it says the trumpet of God, right, this isn't God putting a soundtrack to it and just playing a little tune. But it conjures up the images of warfare. Think of Jericho. When they marched around the city for six days blasting their trumpets, and then on the last day they blasted their trumpets, and salvation came for the people of God, but judgment came for the enemies of the Lord. Just like we've heard in the book of Revelation in our adult Sunday school class, it will be an amazing announcement that the king has come. And he's come both in judgment and salvation. He's come to punish the wicked and he's come to reward the righteous. He's come to separate the sheep from the goats that now are living together in the world and even intermixing in the church now and then they will be forever separated. The emphasis here is not just that all will see and hear but all will respond. All will rise. Everyone who's ever lived will be raised to see King Jesus. Another passage of scripture right, says, every knee will ultimately bow before Jesus. On this side of glory, in faith and hope, or on the other side in abject subjection and wrath, if you don't do it now, which is the impetus for the church to go out and preach. You'll either bow your knee now in faith and trust to our Lord God and to Jesus, or you will bow your knee on the other side recognizing it's too late. And it wasn't because I didn't have the information. It's because I hardened my heart and I hated him and I didn't want him to rule over me and it'll be too late. And note that they are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. 
which is really a, a technical term. It carries the idea of that triumphal entry of going to meet the king. Remember when Jesus was entering Jerusalem, they were yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were throwing down palm branches. It's a technical term, meaning to meet the Lord in the air. It is coming. It is returning when he is announced and proclaimed and received as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, exactly who he is and who he said he was. And we will see that. We will hear that. We will be a part of that. We will be participating in that. And so the how of his return will be from heaven. It'll be corporal. It'll be physical. It'll be visible. It will be majestic, it will be public, and it will be amazing, unrepeatable, unmissable, unduplicatable, and transformational. We'll never go back to the way things were again. Defining point, the last tick on the redemptive historical clock, the new heavens and the new earth, where his saints will dwell securely forever, and hell. No more middle ground, no more middle earth, but the new heavens and the new earth. And so what about the why of his return? Let's look at that finally. The why, or maybe even the what of his return, are the final events of human history. There will be the renewal of all things, the resurrection of the dead, and the final judgment. All of that happens when the king returns. The renewal of all things, the resurrection of the dead, and the final judgment. The first, the renewal of all things, recognizes that there's a cosmic significance to Christ's return, just as there's a cosmic consequence to human sin. Sin has affected all of creation, hasn't it? Romans 8, 20 through 21 says, For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Isn't that interesting? Creation is described as groaning and longing and aching for renewal and relief. Because we don't live in the world that was created, and we don't live in the world that will be in glory. We live in a sin-cursed world, and uh, it's giving us language like the earth itself has been pained and grieved and frustrated. We can look around at the challenges that our earth and other creatures and creation have had to endure because of living on a sin-cursed planet. Second Peter says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're waiting for the longing and the renewal and the restoration, uh, the resurrection, really, of all things. Also, it says that all people that ever lived will be raised. Turn, if you will, in your Bibles to John 5, 28. This passage struck me this week in a way that I don't think it's ever struck me. And so I want to highlight it for you in hopes that it'll sink in for you earlier than it did for me. <laughs> Listen to what the text says here. This is remarkable. John five twenty eight and 29. Do not marvel at this. 
For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. That's a really clear and stark contrast. Because sometimes people present it as there's going to be this judgment and people don't know where they're going. And you're already either a sheep or a goat. You're already either elect or not. You're already either a child of the king or you're not. And this passage is saying, in that same resurrection, some are going to the resurrection of life. Some are going to glory. Some are going to the new heavens and the new earth. Some are going to receive that which is promised to them before the foundation of the world. And others are going to judgment. In the same resurrection, not two different resurrections. or not one outcome that's still yet unknown. You're going to go you who know the Lord, you who belong to him, you have been baptized in his name, you are looking to Christ alone, you are part of the resurrection of life. And you are connected to the one who is the resurrection and the life. And because he lives, you live. And because he lives, you will live forever and ever and ever. And you will be raised to that. It's amazing to think about. So we recognize that the why or the what of his return will be the renewal of all things, cosmic significance, the resurrection of the dead, and final judgment. And final judgment is definitive and decisive. It's not a process. It will be a formal and forensic declaration. Some people have said that this would be superfluous. Like, why bother after the resurrection? But it's going to magnify God's grace and his holiness and his righteousness and his mercy. It will be public and it will pertain to us both body and soul. It forever fixes the destiny of covenant keepers and covenant breakers. Recognizing that God is gracious and glorious in the gospel for his children. And law and condemnation for those who are his enemies. Some of us will hear, well done my good and faithful servant. Enter into paradise. Others will hear, depart from me, I never knew you. What a stark contrast. And it won't be on that day that it's figured out or on that day you don't know. You know. Are you bowing your knee today? Worshiping God? Looking to Christ alone for your salvation? Or are you shaking your fist and say, I will not? It's clear. Well done, my good and faithful servant, because Christ has cleansed you, because Christ has made you his own, because Christ has fulfilled all the requirements of the law for you, because you are holy and righteous, not in yourself, but because his robe of righteousness covers you. Enter into paradise. You are mine now and always. Come. This is what I've done. I've gone to prepare a place for you, and I said I'd come and get you, and now I am. Come. The banquet's ready. The feast is ready. Let's live. Let's enjoy forever and ever and ever. Only those clothed with Christ's righteousness will stand in that great day. But God will avenge his name and his son and his people on all of those who rejected those things. His name, his word, his son, his gospel, and his people. We will see and witness God punishing his enemies and ours justly. For the rejection of him. And we won't be prideful thinking good for us because we're so awesome. We will be awestruck at his mercy and his grace 
and his kindness towards us, recognizing it wasn't us, but him, who from the foundation of the world set his name on us and came and rescued us in space and time. On the contrary to those who are being punished, the faithful and the elect will be crowned with glory and honor, it says. To be crowned with glory and honor is what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was crowned with. It's recognizing that we receive the same crown and the same blessings that he does. Ours is not of merit, but of grace. His is of merit. He earned and merited glory. He earned and merited our salvation. He endured the penalty that laid on us, and he positively fulfilled all the requirements of the law on our behalf. And so he was crowned with glory and honor, and those things will be ours. We receive Christ plus all of his benefits, and all Christians, from the weakest of us to the strongest of us, from the most mature to the least mature, receive the same Christ and the same benefits and the same glory and the same honor. An embarrassment of riches. And look at what our text says back in 1 Thessalonians. It wants to recognize that the comfort that Paul is giving is based on the indicatives of who you are. It's not saying if you do these things, then you'll have these things. It's saying you are these things. So be comforted, be assured. Look at verse 4. It says, but you. But you are not in darkness, brothers. It's not telling you don't be in darkness. It's telling you you're not. You belong to the light. You belong to Jesus. You belong to him. But do not be in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another another up just as you're doing <laughs> these are things that he is saying are true of you you are you are children of the light you are children of the day you are not of the darkness you belong to the lord you belong to christ you have already put on faith hope and love right faith means that you're receiving and resting and trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, your forgiveness and your righteousness. Everything that you need is in him. You have faith. You also have love, which is a fruit of faith. You have love in so many different ways. First and foremost, you're loved by God. And now that you're part of the new creation, you love God. But you also now are able to and do love others. Your life is just filled with love. God's love has been poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit who has been given to you. So love prevails. It's a mission of love and a mission of mercy that even sent our Lord and Savior Jesus to, to come and to die for you. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whoever should believe in him will have eternal life. 
And so it talks about our faith, our love, and then the hope of salvation. The hope of salvation is talking not only about Christ's first coming, but in this context, clearly Paul's talking about his second coming. Our hope is the blessed return of the king. When all of the sorrows, when all of the tribulations, when all of the torment, when all of the challenges that we have today will be over forever and ever. And even this 57-year-old body that's decaying and creaking and doing all these things that I really don't want it to do anymore, some of which are my fault and some are not, it's all over. A glorious and resurrected body, never to be sick. No more tears, no more sorrow, no more cancer, no more AIDS, no more dying, no more sorrow, no more loneliness. No more anything like that, but just love and peace and harmony and joy forever and ever. And friends, if you think about the Christian triad of faith, hope, and love, it's interesting that it says love is the greatest of these. And why is that? I submit to you that when Christ returns, you won't need faith or hope anymore. Your faith will be turned to sight Your hope will have realized its eschatological ending in glory, but love will remain. You are conceived and brought forth in love. You are chosen in love. You are regenerated in love. You are forgiven in love. You're loved, and you will be loved forever and ever, and you will go on loving. You will no longer need faith. You will no longer need hope. You have the realization of all of those right now. You're longing, you're hoping, you're praying, you're believing. But that faith will be turned to sight. You will see him and you will be like him. And you will be his now and always. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 through 10 says, But since we belong to the day, right? Not, hey, make yourself belong to the day and then this will happen. But since you belong to the day... Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for, the helmet, uh, for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or sleep, we might live with him. Isn't that an incredible promise, incredible word? God has not destined you for wrath. Anyone who tells you that is selling something. They're lying to you. The Holy Spirit and Scripture are telling you God has not destined you for wrath, but for life in Jesus Christ now and always. Through Christ who died for us. It goes on to give us the gospel, doesn't it? Without Christ's death for us, we would endure the wrath of God. We would be sent to hell. We would endure his eternal condemnation. But Christ died for us in our stead as a substitute. Therefore, we will not be punished. We will not go into eternal condemnation. We will not have his wrath, but just his salvation and glory and gifts to us over and over. This is what it's trying to highlight for us. Revelation 21, 3 and 4 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for all of the former things have passed away. That's the glimpse of glory that we get in Scripture. Paul doesn't want us to have fear. He wants us to have comfort. The Holy Spirit doesn't want us to be afraid, but to be confident, not in ourselves, but in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who said, I'm going away, but I will come, and I will come again soon. Amen. Surely come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message. We recognize that there are so many things that call us, cause us anxiety and fear about wrath, about judgment, about condemnation, about the return of Jesus. We thank you that you have written to comfort us. And we know that our salvation is sure not in ourselves. If it was in ourselves, we would have reason to be afraid. But it's in Christ, and so we have no reason to fear. Because he is fully satisfied for all of our sins. He died for us. And he rose again, conquering sin, conquering Satan, conquering death. He fully obeyed on our behalf, and that righteousness is given to us, imputed to us as a gift. And we know that even now, there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And so, Father, we ask in light of these things, because we belong to the day, because we belong to the light, because we are your children, may we be sober. May we be awake. May we be looking on the horizon, awaiting for the return of the King with our ears attuned to the promises. And may we be eager to go out and share with the lost and dying world the reality of what's coming next on the clock, the condemnation and wrath of those who don't know the Lord, but life and salvation and hope and peace and joy unimaginable for everyone who calls on the name of Jesus. And Father, all of us here have friends and family, loved ones who don't know you. We ask that you would be merciful to them. We ask that you would save them. We ask that you would give them eyes to see and hearts to believe and ears to hear and that they would come running to you through a faith that you've given them. In Jesus' name, amen.